The children of Israel were led to the promised land by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When it moved, they moved. When it stayed put over the tabernacle, they stayed put. Later, that Shekinah glory of God filled the temple when the Ark of the Covenant was installed in the Holy of Holies. But at some point in history, the glory left Israel. To remind them of that glory and the pillar of fire that had led them, four great candelabras, or menorah, were lit in the court of women at the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a ceremony called the illumination of the temple, and it was said that light from the candelabras was so brilliant that it lit up every courtyard in Jerusalem. This was the setting for Jesus' words, I am the light of the world. In the eighth chapter of John's Gospel, Again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. This is the second of the seven great I am's recorded in John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door through which the sheep enter. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Now these were all powerful statements of Christ about his identity. But none of them could have been more shocking to the Jews than this one, I am the light of the world. The Jews recognized the Lord God as their light. In Psalm 27.1, we read, the Lord is my light and my salvation. In Isaiah 60, 19 and 20, Isaiah speaks of a time when there will be no need for sun and moon because the Lord will be our everlasting light. And in Micah 7.8, we find, though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. And now, Jesus was proclaiming in the temple, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. Now, the Jews certainly did not feel they were in darkness. They had the law of God. They were religious people. They were the enlightened ones. They thought they knew where they were going. And yet Jesus says, in effect, if you don't follow me, you're walking in darkness. He had already told his disciples that the Pharisees were blind guides leading the blind, and they were all destined to fall into a pit. Now he makes it clear that anyone who wouldn't follow him was walking in darkness. I am the light of the world. He was claiming to be the only light 
for the entire world. If you want light in your life, you must follow me. And what does it mean to follow Jesus? To the Greeks, the word used here meant five things. It meant to understand a line of thinking, to follow a line of reasoning. I follow you. It meant to abide by the laws as a good citizen, to follow the law. It meant to accept the advice and counsel of someone else, to follow their instruction. It meant to serve someone as a slave following closely on his master's heels. It meant to obey orders explicitly, like a soldier following the orders of his captain. To follow Jesus should mean the same things to us. We understand the way he thinks because we have committed ourselves to studying his every word. We abide by his laws because we have become citizens of his kingdom. We accept his counsel and follow his directions because we know he is all-knowing. We serve him faithfully because we have made him our Lord and Master. We obey his every command because we have made him the captain of our souls. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And if we'll do that, we will be truly walking in the light. Now this makes sense to us because we have accepted Jesus as the light of the world. At least we assume that to be the case in Christian churches. Sadly, I recently read a report in the Christian Post that was headlined, Shocking Survey Finds Only Half of Evangelical Pastors Hold Biblical Worldview. The article begins, Once considered the denomination of scriptural truth bearers, Evangelical Christians might be in jeopardy of losing their theological reputation. It then goes on to report that a recent survey indicated that just 51% of all U.S. pastors of evangelical church have a biblical worldview, and that only 37% of Christian pastors bring a biblical worldview with them to their pulpits. Now, what's a Christian worldview? Well, a Christian worldview, as tracked by the American Worldview Inventory, measures beliefs and behaviors within eight categories of worldview application. Purpose and calling. Do you understand what God's purpose is for you and what he's called you to do. Family and value of life. Do you understand the centrality of the family and the value of life that God grants in that circumstance? God, creation, and history. Do you understand who God is and how he's acted throughout history and that he's the creator that we worship? Faith practices 
Do you do those things that express your faith to others? Sin, salvation, and relationship with God. Do you understand sin and its consequences and how it affects our relationship with God? Human character and nature. Do you understand the fallen nature of mankind? Do you understand the sin that's invaded the world? Lifestyle, behavior, and relationships. Do you act different than those around you? Do you enter into relationships based on someone else's relationship to God as being primary and fundamental? Does your behavior reflect your walk with Christ? And then, of course, the Bible, truth, and morals. Do you hold a high view of God's word? Do you understand that truth is revealed in God's word? And is your moral foundation based on the revelation of God. That's what's meant by a Christian worldview. Sadly, the bottom line, as the article reported, is with barely half of evangelical pastors possessing a biblical worldview and that number continuing to decline, attending what may be considered an evangelical church no longer ensures a pastoral staff that has a high view of scriptures. Apparently, the Pharisees of old weren't the only ones who were walking in darkness. Be that as it may, the Pharisees were shocked at Jesus' claim to be the light of the world, and immediately challenged his right to make such a claim. Let's check out his response. The Pharisees therefore said to him, you are bearing witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going but you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. You people judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I and he who sent me. The Pharisees thought they could discredit Jesus by pointing out that his witness about himself would be unacceptable in a court of law. He was given testimony about himself and offered no witness to confirm his claim. His response is quite simply, even if I do bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. Now the more you think about that, the more profound it becomes. Because Jesus is the only one who, in and of himself, knows where he came from and where he's going. You know, where did you come from? Do you really know? You know what you've been told, but do you really know? Do you remember the moment of conception? Do you remember your birth? Do you even remember the first years of your life? No, we don't. But 
Jesus did. In fact, he remembered his life before the womb. He knew where he came from. He didn't need anyone to tell him where he came from. Mary didn't have to tell him about the angel's visit. He watched it take place. In fact, he sent the angel. He didn't have to go through the family album to visualize the manger that served as his first cradle or his first birthday or the visit of the wise men. He knew where he came from because he was God in the flesh. Now, some today might ask, did Jesus know he was God when he was on earth? The answer is absolutely. He knew where he was from. And he knew where he was going. The future didn't hold any surprises for him. He knew the future. He was God. So he could obviously light the way. In fact, he was the only one who could light the way because he was the only one who knew where he was going. And if you don't know where you're going, a light doesn't do you much good. And when Matt moved to Tennessee, he loved the wilderness he could explore above ground and beneath ground. We bought him a spelunker's helmet so he could explore caves without banging his head. And he led us on several expeditions into totally dark holes in the ground. Of course, we always took several sources of light with us. On one particular trip, I wore a, a new headlight, had a new flashlight, and carried a pocket full of batteries. Paul had a headlight as well and carried his million candle power spotlight. Matt also had a headlight, a flashlight, and a two million power spotlight. But he also had something that Paul and I didn't have. He knew where he was going because he'd been there before. We knew we would never find our way out if we lost our light, but even with them, we would have been hopelessly lost without Matt. The same is true of our state without Jesus. We may think we have enough light in and of ourselves to make it safely through life, but if we don't know the way to our final destination, we will never make it. Jesus knows where he's going because he's already been there. And he knows where to shine the light. All we have to do is follow it. The Pharisees' judgment of Jesus was woefully inadequate. They judged him according to the flesh. They only saw a man who came from Galilee, a 30-year-old son of a common laborer who lacked the formal education they had. Who did he think he was calling himself the light of of the world. It was a ludicrous claim, or so they thought. They didn't know he was God in the flesh. They really didn't know where he was from, and they certainly didn't know where he was going. But he did, and he knew who had sent him. 
We continue. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. And so they were saying to him, well, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Since they wanted two witnesses, Jesus gave them two. In fact, he gave them the only two who could really witness as to who he was, himself and the Father who sent him. They were the only ones with first-hand knowledge of his origin, of his true identity. And this wasn't the first time he had pointed to his father as a witness to his identity. The last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, he offered the witness of his works, works the Father had sent him to do and had enabled him to do. And if they had eyes to see, they could see his Father at work, working through him. He also offered the witness of the Father that had been heard from heaven on at least two occasions. For at his baptism and transfiguration, God spoke from heaven with an audible voice, confirming that Jesus was, in fact, his son. And he offered the witness of scripture, God's written testimony about his son. So the father indeed served as a witness to the son, and Jesus reminded them of that fact. They responded with, where's your father? It was a challenge for him to call his father to the witness stand, or as C.S. Lewis would say, to put God in the dock. Now, they knew Jesus was talking about his heavenly father, and obviously God couldn't be called as a physical witness. So Jesus simply dismissed the ridiculous request by declaring that they didn't know him or his father. If they really knew him, they'd know his father also and wouldn't be asking such a ridiculous thing. They would know who Jesus was and who it was that had sent him. But they were in the dark. They were blinded to the truth by their own religious hypocrisy. They pretended to know God when, in fact, they had never met him. And obviously, they wouldn't recognize him when he took on flesh and dwelt among them. Obviously, these words didn't set well with the religious leaders of the day. But even though Jesus declared this openly in the treasury of the temple, in a public area where 13 trumpet-shaped offering boxes were located in the court of women, the authorities did nothing to stop him. Because, John notes, his hour had not yet come. It wasn't time for him to be arrested and tried and crucified. That time would come some six months later, and he knew it. He knew what was coming because he was the light of the world. 
the one who knew where he came from and where he was going. His task at that point was to simply declare that fact and to invite people to follow him, to come out of the darkness and into the light. And thanks be to God, that invitation is still open today. The light of the world is Jesus. And he is still offering to light the way for those who will follow him. So what about you? Are you willing to follow him? Do you know and understand his word? And do you follow what he says? Have you become a citizen in his kingdom? And are you abiding by the laws of the kingdom? Do you go to him for direction in life and follow his counsel? Have you made him your master? And are you following faithfully to be of service to him? Is he the captain of your soul? The one you obey without question. I hope so. Because if you are, you are walking in the light. And you know where you are going because you are following the one who has gone before. If you're not following him, now is the time to begin. Come to the light shining.